Do you like what you're hearing right now? Then be sure to check out VOC Nation. Whether it's on VOCNation.com or your favorite podcast provider, VOC Nation offers the greatest in live and on-demand content, great interviews, and incredible insight from those who have lived the business. Seven days a week, VOCNation.com. And don't forget to check us out on Twitter at VOCNation. Welcome to another edition of Bumps and Thumps, the talk of wrestling. I'm Brian Ferguson. My guest today, he doesn't need an introduction. He's a well-known historian, uh, well-known throughout the wrestling world, both in pro and at all the uh, organizations and conventions we have around the country. My good friend, been on here time and time again, appreciate it. My good friend, George Shire, thank you for coming on today. Hey, we're talking wrestling, so it's got to be fun, right? Always fun. And I want to talk about a particular wrestler, to me, George, that doesn't get the recognition, I feel, and I'm sure you do too, that he deserves. There's others, but this one in particular today is Nick Bockwinkle. Nick Bockwinkle, uh, in my mind, one of the top five all time, without question, in my mind. Uh, you know, maybe younger people, uh, 40 and under, probably don't even know who the guy is, unfortunately. Uh, well, that's true of a lot of wrestlers. I mean, of, of, 40, of the... Yes. Under 40, don't know a lot of the wrestlers unless you hear, you know, Hogan behind me there, Flair, guys. But one in particular is Nick Bockwinkle. And I want to talk about him today, if we could. And I want to start out with his background. And I know you're very familiar with Nick. You were friends with Nick. You were uh, close with him. He's been in your home. Tell us a little bit about his his background, his, you know, growing up and, and getting into the business and things of that nature, if you would, please. Well, you know, the thing about Nick, and you're right, Brian, he, he doesn't, uh, I don't think he gets the accolades that he deserves. That age 40 and over that you speak of, um, you know, you can't blame them for not wanting to know about history. They're involved in it brawled with their current product and business as it is. And we always have to give them their credit for enjoying wrestling for the way it is today. But the old codger like me, and I'm, I'm a lot older than you are. So I <laughs> applaud people like you. I do. I sincerely do because you are among a, a, it's really a small group of people that really care about wrestling's storied past, learning about the guys, the pioneers that, you know, they, they set the bar very high for a lot of the, the stars today. The one thing that I would always just give young talent some advice on is if you really want to learn your craft, if you really want to get better at what you do and become great at what you do, go out there for what limited videos there are available and look at the Nick Bockwinkles. And the Vern Gagne's and the Harley races and, and all of the others, look at their videos, pay attention to them, watch what they do, watch how they walk, watch how they strut, watch how they, they talk, um, watch how they get a reaction from the crowd, watch how they get the crowd to go for them or against them. You, If our young wrestlers today would not discount what these guys brought to the business and in the forefront you're right nick bockwick uh absolutely one of the best with that said i want to sum it up very quickly by just saying this is this is me I love my it. morning coffee is in here and I love it. on the back we've got the silhouette yes. of nick wearing that infamous but here's the deal with Nick. 
This is a guy who literally grew up around the business, being that his dad, and you talk about somebody who doesn't get credit because he wasn't a, a big national world champion of his era, but we're talking Warren Bockwinkle, Nikki's dad. But Warren Bockwinkle, let's just start with that. He was a guy who was very respected in his era, in the 40s, in the early 50s, even a little bit of the later 30s. Warren was extremely respected. And he was respected, Brian, because he was first and foremost a wrestler. Warren Bockwinkle didn't have a gimmick. He didn't have any fancy uniforms, any fancy jackets, uh, you know, bring attire, haircuts, fancy boots. He just wrestled. And he, he was in an era when guys like Lou Thez were in the business. And Warren did it the right way. He just traveled, went around. He earned respect from fans by doing that wrestling. He was a good guy. Or he could be the bad guy if he wanted to be. He was just one of those guys that, you know, depending on the opponent. And that takes a special skill. Sometimes the tweeners, as we were calling them back in the day, are some of your best workers. So Warren was around the business, uh, hung out with Luthez. And little Nick, you know, he's having the chance at, the younger age to be around the wrestling business. You can't help but think that some of that soaked in. And Nick told me a few times, he said, you know, he'd have the chance to maybe be around his dad. And he just observed. Nick paid attention. It was important for him to just watch. He didn't interrupt. He didn't, you know, interfere with what was going on. But he learned. And it was his dad, Warren, it was Luthez and a guy by the name of Wilbur Snyder, who were the primary trainers for what would later become Nick Bockwinkel, as we okay. knew him. Yeah. Uh, Wilbur Snyder was about 10 years older than Nick, truly about a decade older. Uh, ironically, they kind of resembled each other in their younger years. They both had the crew cut in their day and basically the same type of build and they even formed a tremendous tag team after Nick got into the business in the very early 60s uh, Nick and Wilbur were uh, California version world tag team champions they held the Indianapolis version of the tag team title together but Wilbur was a very big influence on Nick Um, one one great story when we talk about it this comes to me as I talk you know that (laughs) Nick told the story about he has the he had the distinction of sitting on the lap of Luthez as a younger as a baby almost still a baby and Nick says that he wet his pants right on Luthez so he holds that distinction that on the great world champion Luthez Nick says I peed on and only the way Nick could share it he had You know, anybody that knew Nick Bockwinkle knows that he had such a, uh, I guess I'd call it a dry sense of humor. He had a way of, he had a smirk that he could put on his face and he could throw something in there and it just got you. He just had a way of doing that. And he just had a, a personality that I think eventually just was wrestling in general. So his basic start in the business and his first match was in 1954. So Nick would have been about 18 years old, give or take. He was born in, uh, actually he would have been almost 20. I take that back. He was born in, in, uh, 34, 1934, but Nick had wrestled a little bit off and on dabbling in it, but officially his pro matches kind of started around. 1954 and he had been to college he wanted to be a football player but his knees had banged up knees and he couldn't do that and uh so football wasn't it but he was at oklahoma for uh, his college years 
and uh, just begged his dad to help him out, to train him, and Lou, of course, and Wilbur was there, uh, being a close family friend, and so it all came together. Wow. Yeah, uh, I read some stuff on, on Nick about going out to California. Uh, I believe he went to UCLA for a little while to yeah. finish up his degree and yeah. then uh, had to do some matches actually out there to pay for his college. Um, and then was he was in the service, is that correct? He was. And that's an interesting thing because he was, uh, while he was in the Army, he was stationed at Fort Ord, O-R-D. And it was forbidden in those days, probably still is today, I don't know, but it was forbidden that the guys would go off base and do something, especially like wrestling. But Nick would go off base and he would wrestle, but... He did not wrestle as Nick Bockwinkel. His earliest results, you will see names like Nick Warren or Dick Warren. And Warren, of course, he was using his daddy's name. Yeah. But Nick Warren. And it was interesting because Nick said one time that uh, one of the sergeants or something in, in the, the camp, he says, you know, you kind of look like that guy that wrestled the other night. And of course, Nick, you know, he couldn't admit it or yeah. anything, but yeah, he did. Uh, there are some early results with him. He even held a tag team title as Dick okay. Warren. He yeah. teamed up with uh, who, who was then still a young wrestler, Ramon Torres. And uh, they actually won a version of the NWA world tag team title at the time. Uh, you know, I say version because just always letting fans know that the NWA, the National Wrestling Alliance, never officially recognized any tag team as the official NWA World Tag Team Champions. They only recognized the World Heavyweight title and the Junior Heavyweight Championship. Those were the only two titles for the NWA. But if you go around the country in those days, all the different territories that were under the NWA umbrella, they all had their own version of the NWA World Tag Team Champions. So yeah. there, there were hundreds of them. I mean, it's, yeah. So Nick and, Nick and Ramon Torres uh, actually held a version yeah. of the title. Yeah. I think it's interesting. Um, now, I've seen a story, and this is where I need you to confirm the historical fact. Uh, when Nick got to the AWA... In 70, 1970, I believe it was, around 1970. December 10th, 1970, that was his first appearance on All-Star okay. Wrestling TV. So he came in there uh, and wrestled and already had credentials as far as being in other territories. You know, Vern brought him in. Um, my question is to you. Was he supposed to get the heavyweight title earlier than 75? I have read where he was going to be the champion in 72 or 3 around that time. The reason why they delayed it is when uh, Hercules Cortez was killed in the car wreck. And they wanted to team him with Ray Stevens uh, to get the tag team titles from uh, Bastine and I believe it was Crusher then. I'm not quite can't remember, but is that accurate or is that a false yeah. internet um, claim? Yeah, the, the real chronology of the thing, we should point out that Nick had actually been contacted by Vern Gagne and Wally Carbo, um, even a couple years earlier than 1970, uh, Vern had always Vern had been around the business long enough where Warren was one of his his idols, you may say, and of course they were friends. And Vern knew of Nick's 
abilities, okay? Now, let's just back up the truck a little bit. When Nick started in 1954, he did have the honor, which, you know, a lot of these older wrestlers, they said this was an honor uh, in hindsight when they got to team with their dads. And what Nick had had a chance to do was Warren's career was on the downside. It, it worked good for him because he could get into the tag team. And a lot of older wrestlers would get involved in tag teams because then they didn't have to do the whole workload. Another wrestler could carry more of the weight and still the team could be over because of the name value of, of the seasoned veteran that, you know, is kind of getting up there. So this was the case with Warren. And he had the chance to team with his son. And Nick always told me, he said, of all of the tag team partners and tag team matches that he ever had, he said it was such an honor for him to be in the ring with his dad. Now, you would hear Larry Hennig tell that story later on about his son, Kurt, and so on. And Vern, he said that about Greg uh, later on, you know, that it was such a thrill that Greg could team with his dad and vice versa. So Nick, though, you know, a lot of the older or the younger fans, they don't they don't realize that these guys didn't just start in the wrestling ring, get in the get in the ring, have a match and they were over and they were getting a push and they were going to be the world champion and they were going to, yeah. you know, take over the territory. Yeah the vast majority of the guys of Nick's era, and let's just say that mid fifties through let's go to 1970. A lot of the guys that started in the business during those years, they literally started in the business and then had to work their way up on cards around the country, maybe even travel the world a little bit, but definitely different territories where they would be in opening matches or mid card maybe semi-wind-ups, but they were, as you want to say, learning the trade. It was very important for most promoters in those days to have the young wrestlers travel, gain experience, mm -hmm. go out to a different territory, learn from other talent. You could bring that back home eventually. And that's what Nick did. Ironically, in those days, if a guy started in the business, it would usually be five maybe even as, even as much as 10 years before they were now a bona fide star themselves and being a main eventer and then going against some of those veterans that, you know, could help put them over as well. It wasn't like, it, and, and again, this isn't a knock on today's wrestling because it's a different product. But today, the guy goes to a training camp, wham, bam, you're in the business and you're the next big thing, you're on TV and because you're built, you know, six foot nine and a half, and you got muscles that span two cities, you're, you're the next champion. The guys in the old era didn't have that ability. With but the rarest exceptions, Vern Gagne being one of them. He came out of the Olympics. He was an established star. He was given mega stardom right away because of those credentials. But a guy like Nick Bachwinkle had to earn his oats. So when he came here and I threw out that date, December 10th of 1970. Mm -hmm. I throw that out because I literally, Brian, I remember it, honest to God, like it was, well, the day before yesterday. <laughs> I, I was, I was 1970, I was, uh, I had just turned 19 years old, a couple of months earlier. And here I'm watching All-Star Wrestling in my bedroom at home. Used to be on at six, at 6 to 7.30 on Saturday nights. I'm watching it on my little black and white Zenith TV with the rabbit ears. And this new guy comes out. Marty is talking to, oh, he has a match, a squash match on TV. He beat a jobber. But he comes out and he's talking to Marty. And, you know, the thing about wrestling, and, and most fans will tell you this, is there's always a guy that, they immediately like him or they immediately, ah, ho-hum, you know, and the guy doesn't get over. So I'm watching TV and Nick is talking to Marty and Nick is very soft-spoken, very low-key, just came out there and stood and, you know, with his arms folded and Marty asked him, you know, Nick, I know you're a second-generation wrestler. Tell me a little bit about yourself. And Nick, not raising his voice at all, he just said, I've been wrestling for a number of years. 
I got training from my dad. I'm on my own. I've been chasing the world championship. And he said, quite honestly, Marty, uh, the champion Vern Gagne has avoided me, I think. He has evaded me when I've been in territories. He doesn't come in. So he said, I'm in Nick, I'm in Vern Gagne's backyard right here, Minneapolis. And I've come here to challenge. And uh, the thing that got him over that was the way Nick finished that interview. He said to Marty, he said, you know, Marty, in Hawaii, where I just came from and I was the state champion, when someone is leaving Hawaii, we say aloha. And then he looked at the camera and he said, Vern Gagne, I'm here. I'm going to come after you. Aloha, Vern Gagne. And he just walked off. And Marty O'Neill, you know, there he is, fans. New challenger, Nick Bockwinkle. Yeah. Now, I paraphrased the way he said that a little bit. I wished right. it was on tape because it was, I was like, whoa, that was powerful. Yeah. I mean, he issued the challenge. And then he said, Vern Gagne, you're leaving. When he was a con when he was contacted by Vernon Wally to come in, as I said, it was actually as much as two years earlier. Logistically, it didn't work out. Nick was mm -hmm. still fulfilling commitments in other territories. What happened with Nick, though, whether it was by by design or whether it was by fate, whatever, Nick went to Georgia for wrestling in that territory at the, in 1969, early 69. And uh, for the first time in his career, he was wrestling as a heel. Okay. He had never done this before. He was always very popular baby face. And as I said earlier in his career, young Nicky Bockwinkle, the lady's favorite, they used to call it. And he was, you know, <laughs> as clean cut. You know, you got, when we say the yeah. crew cut and everything, he was just clean cut the kid, yeah. the boy next door look. So <laughs> he, uh, he was, he was dabbling in the heel territory and it was in Georgia for that year where he ended up becoming Georgia state champion. He ended up winning the Georgia tag team title for a little bit, but definitely he was working with guys in the business that were really helping him in the heel category. Guys like Paul DeMarco, who was a heck of a great heel. Buddy Colt, Ron Reed to some AWA fans, but Buddy was a, a top-notch heel right at that point in time. And uh, one of the guys that worked a lot with Nick was a guy named Jody Hamilton, Joe Hamilton, who was under the mask as the assassin, or one of the assassins at the time. There were two of them, uh, Tom Ernesto being the other one. But Jody Hamilton worked a little bit with him. And for fans that heard Jody Hamilton over the years, he had a, a unique interview style where he could not really shout and rant and rave, but he could get his point across. And you believed him. If he said he was going to hurt you, you believed him. If he said he was going to hurt you, you wanted to see him beat so that he did, you know, that, that was the way Jody was. And so he was a good influence on him. Then it started to work out with coming to the AWA. So to answer your question, yes, Vern and Wally, especially Vern, had told Nick that he wanted him to kind of come in and be the heir apparent to okay. the Vern Gagne championship. Um, Vern, by 1970, was still wrestling a pretty much a full schedule, but his schedule was a lot less than it had been, you know, the previous year, two, three, four, five before that, when he'd be wrestling you know, 20 times a month or more, yeah. where now Vern was wrestling more maybe once or twice or three times a month as yeah. champion. In 1970, he was still, uh, what would he have been, approaching, he was born in 26, 66, he's, he's 40, 40, about 45, 44, 45, 45 yeah, 46 44. years old, okay? Yeah. And for a wrestler in that era, that was, that was getting up there. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, Vern, Definitely wanted Nick to come in and be the uh, eventual AWA champion. Now, Nick said there was never a date set or an exact time, but he did okay. tell me that 
Fern had talked about maybe sometime in 71 or 72. Okay. So that was the plan. And it was a matter of building up that program. Now, here's where you can kind of assume that it probably was in the books to happen. Um, from the time that Nick debuted in the AWA in December of 70, and let's just, his first couple of matches, he had a couple in December, but his actual first start was 71 going forward, okay? Well, we had a guy named Hercules Cortez here who had come back after a decade of not being here. He was very popular. They had hooked him up with Red Bastine. They became the tag team champions. And the reason they became champs was because the Vashon brothers, after pretty close to three years, just shy of three years, uh, they had informed Vern they wanted to give up the title because they were going to go and promote in the Montreal era area for uh, Grand Prix Wrestling, which Paul Vachon yeah. was becoming one of the partners in the in the mm -hmm. the organization. Yeah. So they gave Vern their notice that they'd like to drop the title. Well, Vern had Cortez and Bastine, very popular, very over. Bastine was a hometown boy. He was from Minneapolis. He had returned home a couple of years earlier. It was kind of his home, although he did have a home in Texas. And that, that'll be good for later on when we go there. So he had Cortez and Bastine take the title from the Vachans. Now, Vern's intent with that move was to have Cortez and Bastine basically hold the title for a year or two, depending. Yeah. Because it was, in that era, it was unusual where they'd put the title on someone and then flip it, you know, and flip it and flip it and flip it. So Cortez and Bastine yeah. were going to be the champs. Now, also what happened was with Cortez is that he was in a singles situation match he was undefeated around the AWA. And especially in Minneapolis, he hadn't suffered a singles defeat. So in July of 71, July 24th to be exact, um, Cortez and Bachwinkle were signed to a battle of the unbeatens. And up to that point, Nick had been okay. undefeated. They pretty much ran this match around the circuit. We were the very last one to get it. Battle of the Unbeatens. The rationale was, and the buildup was, is that these two top undefeated challengers, the winner of the Battle of the Unbeatens, would be in line for a title match with Vern Gagne. That was the buildup. Well, it was pretty safe to say that Cortez wasn't going to get a shot at Nick or at uh, Vern, I'm sorry. He wasn't going to get a shot because he was a baby face and he co-held the tag team title at the time. So the assumption would be that Nick was going to go over Cortez and further that getting closer to Vern Gagne match if, when it would take place. On the morning, the early morning hours of July 24th, while coming back from Winnipeg, Canada, and Nick... And uh, Cortez had wrestled on that Duluth or uh, Winnipeg card, not Duluth, du Winnipeg card. Driving back, wee hours of the morning, to come to Minneapolis for the July 24th night card. We are now, you know, so well aware that there was a tragic car accident. Cortez mm -hmm. lost control of the car. Stories say he fell asleep at the wheel. Car went off the road, rolled. Cortez, according to the one report I had, he was actually thrown from the car and he was killed. He died. Bastine was in the front seat. He got pushed into the onto the floor of the front seat, banged up his leg really bad in doing this. And then that night, of course, we get or that morning, we get the news that uh, the wrestler was killed. This is big news because tonight we have a wrestling card. What are we going to do? So All-Star Wrestling comes on TV, and it was live because they used to do them live before the house show. And mm -hmm. that's the opening that we get on the program. Fans, Hercules Cortez, tragically killed. 
And uh, the AWA has announced that uh, uh, Vern Gagne has agreed to wrestle as a last-minute replacement to wrestle Nick. However, the title would not be on the line. And as Vern came out and said, offering his condolences to the Cortez family and the fans, that, you know, I'm doing this because we do have the card, but I haven't had time to prepare for Nick Bockwinkle as a challenger, and I will, we will have the card. For a fan standpoint, this was great. I mean, yeah. you couldn't have come up with a better replacement, short of right. maybe short of maybe the crusher at the time, you know, to yeah. be the the solid replacement. But playing it off of the way they did that, you know, I'm not going to defend the title to him. So that night, um, yeah, it was Vern in an unti- a non-title match. Now, on that same card, it was also, ironically in hindsight, the AWA debut of Ray Stevens, who anybody who was even any type of wrestling fan could learn from the national newsstand magazines was a huge star. So Ray was one of those guys that, you know, he had a reputation coming in. You heard about him in California. He ruled the cow palace and he was, you know, a zillion time United States champion out there. He had tag team championships with various guys. So he was on the card. And coincidentally, he was going to wrestle uh, Ray St- or Red Bastine that night. Well, Bastine also did not wrestle because of that knee or the leg injury. And they put in a substitute. But here's what happened in the main event. Nick and Vern come into the ring, do the introductions. Ray Stevens comes up to the ringside corner post area and he sets a chair down. And he claimed, he told the announcer, Marty O'Neill, that he was here, this was his debut, and he was here to scout both these wrestlers because he was here to win the world title, that it was his time as well, and he was going to scout them both. So he's at ringside in a chair. During the course of the match, uh, Nick was in a sleeper hold that Vern put on. And, you know, we always had the fun story, the background story, that a sleeper was a choker. All the heels, he's (laughs) choking him, he's choking him. You know, he's just that little slip of the arm, and it's off the carotid artery, and he's choking. So he's got the sleeper hold on Nick. Steven stands up and starts pointing to referee Aldo Bogni, who was an old pro wrestler himself who had kind of pretty much semi-retired. Big old dude. Crusty-looking old son of a gun, too, but he was the special referee. (laughs) You you had to see a picture of Aldo Bogni. His only claim to fame was by his own uh, recognition was that he was the North North Dakota state champion. And I've never been able to prove that. But anyway, (laughs) so Stevens is in Bogni's face that he's choking him. Vern is choking him. And Bogni, you know, like was doing the referee's best to not understand what he was saying. So Stevens got up on the ring apron to point to him. He's choking him. Vern, now in hindsight, why would the world champion do this? Let go of a finishing hold. But he let go of Nick and he went over and he popped Stevens who fell down onto the ringside floor. Well, you know what, guys? This gave Nick just that nanosecond he needed to recuperate from all the grogginess. And he comes up behind Vern, rolls him over into a cradle, and all of a sudden Aldo Bogni came to, and one, two, three. And Vern Gagne was was pinned. And then afterwards... We've got the story now that I beat Vern Gagne. Now you can't ignore me, Vern Gagne. You know, this is Nick's version of the story. Yeah. But um, Vern had a whole nother dilemma because this Cortez thing changed history. Mm-hmm. Remember Cortez and Bastine, the thought was is they'd be champs for a couple of years. Right. Well, program subject to change because now Cortez is gone. And Vern, he has to come up with what he's going to do with the tag team title behind the scenes. 
Yeah. Um, in wrestling, there's various ways they've done it in the past. You know, the guy was injured, so we take the title off him. We hold the tournament, all kinds of junk that goes on. But it came down that the AWA and Vern was smart and realized that in order to replace the popular Cortez, he had to have a popular partner. Yeah. So he did what he usually did in a time like this. Vern contacted Reggie Lasowski, the crusher. And he said, you know, I need you to do me a favor. I, I want you to join Bastine. We put the title on you guys for, and Reggie immediately said, I'll do it. But I, this isn't long-term. I don't want, and I've said this before, Crusher did not want, nor did he need a title to be over. So as many mm -hmm. times as he had belts, they were always short-term because he just did it for a favor or a special thing, special rematch, yeah. whatever it was. And he told Vern, yeah, I'll do it, but, you know, this has got to be short-term. Bastine took a boy, Bastine took maybe three, four, five weeks off to get his leg back in shape. Then he yeah. was scheduled to go to Japan in September with Hercules Cortez. There was a tour scheduled, and they were going to go over there as AWA tag team champions. Well, that too fell apart. Well, Crusher wasn't going to go to Japan. He had told Vern he's not doing it. And um, Vern put Billy Howard, who sadly just passed away uh, just a few, like a week or so back. Billy Howard was a journeyman wrestler here in the AWA, was a Central States wrestler, gained some success under a couple of names. He went over as Cortez's replacement. And he and Bastine, during the tour of Japan, during the month of September, they actually won the IWA tag team title for a one-week period. They used to do that when the Americans would come over, wrestle against the Japanese. They'd switch a title or something. And uh, so Red and Billy Howard, they, uh, they held the title over there. And then when Red came back, it was announced that he and Crusher, Stanley Blackburn, has made the decision that uh, Red could choose a partner of his choice. And Red made the comment that, you know, I've looked over the talent, I've looked over all the wrestlers, and I don't think there's anybody that could replace the power and the, the popularity of Hercules and I as the Crusher. And there you had your team. <laughs> so here's where the dilemma comes in. Yeah. Now Vern has got Reggie telling him, I'm not going to do long-term tag team champion and Vern realized that this Nick and Ray combination this this could work because Ray kind of played a part in that that yeah. uh, non-title bomb so what happened was is he had them hooked up a little bit they started going over really well with the fans Vern realized that he could still wrestle less maintain the title but if he had a great team on top, and Larry Hennig and Lars Anderson were also top challengers at that time, but they yeah. had already been a team for a couple, well, almost two years at that point, and they just weren't going to be believable at that time as tag team champions. Okay. So no, nothing against uh, Lars Anderson and, and uh, Larry Hennig at that point because they were great together. Yeah. So anyway, Nick and Ray kind of got the nod, and Nick – or Vern put the title on Nick and Ray in January of 73. So just about four months after Crusher and Bastine were awarded the title. And uh, he got Crusher away from it like Crusher wanted. Bastine then very shook up. And I will tell you this. <coughs> Excuse me. I had a chance on more than one occasion to talk with Red about that car accident. And uh, Red told me that that took so much out of him that yeah. to lose. He and he and Cortez had been friends for over a, a decade or more in the business. And they had actually even teamed very briefly a decade earlier out in California, briefly. But they were good friends. And yeah. he said it just took so much out of him, you know. And it and and Red told me he says it it really brought home to him the constant. Uh, enemy that traveling on the road was because these guys did a lot of traveling from town to town 
you know, to get from this place to that place. And the fact that there weren't more accidents or more injuries or more deaths, you know, probably in hindsight was a miracle because these guys, yeah. they traveled too. I mean, they'd be doing a hundred miles an hour to get to the next town. So yeah. Red told me that really was devastating for him. And he ended up giving Vern his notice. He said, you know, when we dropped the title to Bachwinkle and Stevens, he was going to leave the AWA for a while. And he did. He went down to Texas. He had a home down there, which is what I brought up a moment ago. Mm-hmm. And he, um, he landed in Texas. And if you look at Texas programs from Dallas, Fort Worth and Houston, he landed as a main eventer and he was, off and running down there as a single star for quite some time for the year of 73 into 74. And he was able to be close to home at the time. And, but he, he got over really well down there. So that's how all that came about. And then Vern could just, you know, wrestle less. So I hope I answered your question again. You did. No, you did. Let's talk about the big day when finally uh got or sorry Bachwinkle won the title from Vern in Vern's hometown Minneapolis Minnesota November of 75 I believe it was uh November 8th says November 8th 1975 St. Paul Auditorium were were you there I was sitting ringside tell yeah. us that your perspective you were a young man what was that like for you when that actually occurred and you were there live tell us i will that. tell you i will tell you that after that initial non-title bout there were uh, a couple of other non-title victories over nick over Vern that nick had attained which added to the drama that i've now beaten him four times i've beaten him five times you know, we got to have the title match. That night, um, I was, I, I had never given thought to the fact that maybe this was the night. I honestly didn't. I, I wasn't in the know, but I, I never gave it any thought that this was going to be the night. And here was what was weird about that night. Bobby Heenan, who had been managing Nick for a few months before this now, because Bobby had taken over the tag team of Ray Stevens and Nick Bockwinkel in July of 74 as their manager. And then they held the title until 75 or uh, the end of 70. It was, it was in 75. They ended up losing the crusher and bruiser and Stevens left the territory and Bobby was managing Nick alone. So they were kind of getting to that singles push, but weird on that night. Bobby Heenan was not in the building. He wasn't there to manage Nick that night. Bobby Duncan had come out as Nick's second for the night. And Bobby Duncan at that point in time had been here a short time, but he was sort of, it was boasted that he was being a policeman for Nick. You know, if you wanted a chance to get at Nick, you had to go through Bobby first, that sort of thing. So Bobby Duncan come out as his second. Well, Vern came out with Greg as his second. And both were in their regular clothes. And the special referee for the night, and it wasn't announced as a special referee. He'd just been in the business for a short time at that point in time. It was Paul Pershman, who Uh, later on we know became known as Playboy Buddy Rose, the lean, mean, 217-pound Buddy Rose. Yes. Anyway, but he was Paul Pershman. He had only been wrestling himself for a short time. Vern used to have his rookies referee some matches. That also gave them insight into how the matches work between the two guys. So that's what Paul was doing. And so Paul ended up being the referee. Now, during the course of the match, Bobby Duncombe did get his nose in it a little bit. Vern was pinned. And Nick was the new champ. We went away that night. It was just weird. And I remember thinking, you know, this is going to be one of those things where somehow Stanley Blackburn viewed the tapes that 
God only knows where those tapes were because there were never any cameras, you know. But, well, <laughs> Stanley always had the unique ability to few tapes. But we figured it'd be a reverse decision or something because of the interference or whatever. And that Paul Pershman, you know, didn't see the see the interference. And we figured it was going to be that way. It wasn't. It was for real. Yeah. And Nick was... I just can't tell you what a great champion he was. He did something that most wrestlers in that era were not even doing anymore, but he learned it from his dad. He learned it from Luthez and Vern Gagne did this as well. Even though Nick was a heel, when he walked into a building, when he was out doing an interview and it was a non wrestling night thing, he'd have the suit, the tie, or a very nice sport coat and a nice shirt. He'd be decked out and he'd have the rings on. And he always gave you that persona that he was the champion. And yeah. as he said, it was what Luthez had taught him that if you're the world heavyweight champion, you should look the part. And, you know, again, today you match it today's wrestlers, you know, with the, the different wrestlers that have been champion. I mean, God only knows they got the weirdest outfits and, the, you know, that they don't look a champion at all, but they're the champion. So Nick was the last of an era. Harley Race did that, too. Mm-hmm. Whenever you saw Harley Race, he had the suit, the sport coat, the, the, the professional look. And that was important. And that's the way yeah. the NWA touted their champions in the day. And and Vern yeah. and Nick obviously did that as well. Yeah. I got to tell you, uh Nick, great heel, because I could not stand that man when I was a kid as world champion. He would always, <laughs> back then I thought skate by, interference, nobody saw nothing conveniently, all this stuff. They did it so well. And I want to talk about, if we could, you know, he was champion four times. One time for a reign of five years, unheard of. Nowadays, you don't see a chance. But I want to talk about a a wrestler in particular that came to the AWA in the early 80s that Bachwinkle, in my opinion, uh, got put this guy over so much, and that's Hulk Hogan. Hulk Hogan wasn't a well-known wrestler until he came to the AWA. I never heard of him. Uh, well, he, talk well, about that persona a little bit, how, how that all kind of, how, how Nick put him over. And, you know, we talk, we can talk about the title and stuff and all that. But just talk about that a little bit. Would you George? Well, you have to, you have to look at Nick Bockwinkle. First of all, he, he was everything you said he was when you said he made you hate him with his arrogance, he, he, he delivered an interview that wasn't unlike any other heel at the time. Uh, he didn't spit and shower the, the TV announcer with spit and he, he didn't yell and scream and call names. He was very low key, very sophisticated, used words that a lot of people didn't even understand. We used to laugh, you know, they'd have to run to get the dictionary. Look at what was, what was that? He said just now, you know, and, and uh, Nick would, you know, purposely come out with a word or two. He did this on purpose, but his interview process was so good. And then the fact when he's champion that, yes, the referee always played such a good part where he missed something that the the, the fans saw, but the referee didn't. And somehow the champion would squeeze by and keep the title. And of course that builds matches and rematches and, and challengers. So when you get to the Hogan thing, Hogan was a guy when he first came here, he had been in the business for, oh boy, you know, without looking, I think he maybe started wrestling around 77, 78 here and there. He had had a couple of different names, Sterling Golden. And, uh, but he wasn't going anywhere. He was horrible on the microphone. And there's a YouTube video out there where Johnny Valiant was his manager, his mouthpiece. Vern wanted Hogan to be a heel originally. Yeah. Brought him in and 
Hogan couldn't put a sentence together. If you watch this interview on YouTube, you can see that Hogan, he actually has his back to the to the fans as he's on the interview, but he can't put a sentence together. And they got Johnny's gift of gab to get him over. So Vern uh, and Nick and Bobby Heenan, especially, a lot of people don't know this. They worked with Hogan to get his interview style over when, when Vern realized he was going to be a, a popular star. The fan base was changing by that time in 1980, Brian. And mm. the fans were more enamored with the size and the look of yeah. Hulk Hogan. Uh, he had come off of the Rocky uh, movie theme with Thunderlips. He played in the movie, yeah. the Rocky movie. And he was bigger than life. You know, this tanned, golden, blonde-haired, powerful-looking dude. That was the new baby so against a guy like Nick Bockwinkle, yeah, your fans say, yeah, you know, he could beat him. He, he should have. You got to remember that Nick was a genius at making another wrestler look good. That was yeah. part of sometimes being the champion of any organization. Harley yeah. Race could do that. They could make that challenger look better than they were, and that was the objective, to put yeah. them over, make it appear that, you were on the verge of losing the belt that you were you were beaten beyond words and somehow you snuck in there and won it yeah so hogan was the perfect challenger because there wasn't a fan in any awa arena that didn't go to that arena and come home from that arena believing that hulk hogan was the better wrestler and he should yeah. be champion so now all the fans out there, and this has been going on for, good Lord, almost four decades now. Vern <laughs> Gagne should have put the title on Hulk Hogan. Yes. And then I've the AWA would have been saved and Vince McMahon wouldn't have come in and we wouldn't have, you know, that's all hindsight. It's all speculation. It's all, yeah, maybe, whatever. But here's here's the truth. Vern was drawing sellout crowds with Nick Bockwinkle as the world champion for at this point in time, um, you know, five, six years. Yeah. And Bobby Heenan, the perfect manager. What a combo. There's no greater manager wrestler no. combination. Yeah. Ever. Ever. And so Vern was making money with that. Hogan was the perfect challenger that fans believed should have won it. And that's what you wanted your fans to go home with. Yeah. He got ripped off. Bockwinkle cheated. Heenan cheated. That's what brought the money. And Hogan's going to get a rematch. That's the way wrestling was promoted. So yeah. all of those fans out there who said, well, Vern should have put the title on Hogan. And what Hogan wasn't drawing all entirely. Yeah, he was a draw. But yeah. Hogan was drawing because Bachwinkle made him look so good. He did. I will say I was one of those when I was a kid that he got ripped off, Hogan, this and that. And now that, you know, years later I'm older, more knowledgeable about the, the, the profession and the craft. And you look back and really Bachwinkle made – Hogan, in my opinion, he, he made he made Hogan, like you said, he was kind of a journeyman before Rocky three, you know, got him kind of going again with his uh, looks and, and you know people knowing who he was. And he went to the AWA. And Vern, I don't think it's enough credit either. He spots talent. He knows how to use them and their capacities. And their capabilities. And Hogan, if if he wasn't in the AWA and got all that exposure, if you will, it could be an entirely different outlook. If Vern had just made him a mid-carder because he was so big and beating up people all the time. But to me, Bachwinkle and Ganya made that guy, made him. And the rest is history, obviously, but... Bockwinkle, to me, uh, four-time champion. Uh, last great match to me was the Kurt Henning. 
Oh yeah. Nick Bockwinkle match at the Cow Palace in uh, eighty seven. Eighty seven. May second at the Cow Palace. Yeah, eighty seven. You Great, know, one of the best matches I've ever seen. Honestly, I would agree with you on that. I've watched that match, and I've watched it more than once. And I think nothing is a testament to Nick Bockwinkle more than the fact that in 1987, this was when Nick decided him, himself that he needed to sort of walk away from the ring. He decided mm -hmm. that he wanted to go out when he was still good. Nick said that. He said, mm -hmm. I had aches and pains and different things, and I could still go out there and perform with the best of them. And mm -hmm. Kurt Hennig was the perfect example. Perfect, no, no pun intended. <laughs> but he, he was the perfect example of why yeah. Nick was so good. Because when you see Nick wrestle Kurt in that match, Nick was 20, 20 some years older than Kurt. Yeah. And he, he didn't carry Kurt because Kurt, he was good. Yeah. But between the two of them, the, the wily veteran and the young rookie at that point in time, they put on a clinic that is mm -hmm. for the ages. Yeah. And if nothing says Nick's greatness, and with that, he pretty much walked away. Yeah. He said, I am done. After 33 years, almost 34 years in the business, because he had started in 54, and he walked away as active competitive. Now, he had a couple of little exhibitions later on in some old-time battles, et cetera. But he was done. And yeah. uh, we all know how good Kurt was. So yeah. that's a testament to Nick Bach. Yeah. I only want to say this, and I know we're getting near the end here. Yep. Is that as a fan watching wrestling for all the decades that I have, and you know, I take with great pride the friendships that I've had with so mm -hmm. many of the wrestlers. And I have yes. my favorites. Nick Bachwinkle is on my list of favorites. It's a small list of really close favorites, and Nick is on it. Yeah. The fact that he trusted me, the fact that he confided in me later on, the fact that he would call me, he would talk with me, and we'd do this. And then I sadly saw the the later years decline of his uh, his mind because of Alzheimer's, yeah. of which his dad died of, by the way. Um, and Nick always told me how rough that was. But yeah. we saw Nick at the end where it was evident that Nick didn't know anymore. He wasn't the Nick Bockwinkle that we knew and it was over. Shortly before he passed away, he had uh, said goodbye to Cauliflower Alley. And uh, it was announced by Darlene's wife that this was going to be his last appearance there. Mm -hmm. And I will tell you that uh, I, I've made comment to this before, getting the Christmas cards from him, getting the Christmas phone calls. Yeah. And getting those random phone calls where we could talk for an hour. Yeah. And when I got the word that Nick had died, I legitimately, I'm not ashamed to say this. It was a Sunday morning. I got the news. I had real tears in my eyes. This yeah. was early in the morning on a Sunday that I got the news. And uh, Lorraine asked me, she said, what's wrong? And I told her, I said, Nick died. Yeah. And even as I say that, I still, yeah, I remember yeah. he, um, he was just a special person and a credit yeah. to our business. And yeah. again, I go back to what we started with any youngster out there, any wannabe wrestler, any new wrestler that has any aspirations to be anybody in this business. If you don't go and look at the, the tapes of Nick Bockwinkle and a lot of his peers, you don't go and look at those tapes and seriously try to learn from them. You're mm -hmm. a fool. You're a yeah. fool. And you will never, ever be as great as you might be if you just take it. Don't look at it and say, well, they were old. That was then. This is now. They don't know anything. And I've heard I've heard young wrestlers say that. Oh, those guys, they're a bunch of old guys, you know. Boy, I'll tell you what. You're just, yeah. you're, you're not smart. So there you go. Nick <laughs> Bockwinkle. In my opinion, and I think you share it with me, mm -hmm. one of the greatest professional wrestlers ever. Yeah. And if he isn't on a list 
of all-time greats and on that list near the top, then the list is bogus, kids. The list doesn't yeah. mean anything. If you're going to put guys like uh, some of these newbies that are out there, I don't care who they are. You know, you're Rob Van Dams and and anybody else. You're going to put them above Nick Bockwinkle. You're delusional. You just yeah. are. Not saying they're yeah. not good, yeah. but you're delusional. Nick Bockwinkle, God bless you. I, I am blessed to have had your friendship, and I am so glad that we can t- continue to talk about you and share your accolades. And we could we could go on for hours. So we thank could. you for <laughs> you suggested this topic, and yeah. uh, I had no problem saying one hundred percent. Let's do it. Well, I appreciate it. Uh, you know, like I said, and we'll get off here in just a minute, but uh, Nick, to me, does not get the accolades that he deserves. And there's others, too. But today we're talking about the great one, the great one, in my opinion, Nick Bockwinkle. George Shire, thank you for coming on today, sir. I really appreciate it and always enjoy your insight and knowledge. Appreciate it, sir. Thank you, Brian. Always keep bumps and thumbs as a favorite. Yes, the T-shirts. Yes, are there. And uh, folks, if you're watching, thank you. If you're listening, thank you. And if you haven't subscribed, please do so. And we will talk to you soon. Hey, this is Total Package Lex Luger. You're listening to the VOC Nation. Don't miss out. VOC Nation's own Stro Maestro suffered a major medical and financial catastrophe this year. From the VOC Nation family, to all of you, please continue to pray for Stro Maestro for his continued recovery. You can also donate to his cause, paypal.me slash palpastrow. The worldwide leader in entertainment. This is the VOC Nation Radio Network. Check out In The Room every Tuesday night at 9. Listen in. Pro Wrestling Illustrated's Brady Hicks, former WCW star Stro Maestro, Kathy Fitz, Matt Grimm. And you and Ray are there too, right, Ray? We sure are, and we've got great guests like Lex Luger, AJ Styles, Taku, and more. It's a heck of a party. Plus, I didn't get thrown off uh, buildings. And then uh, pregnant. I didn't get pregnant either. Sometimes I think it gets so ridiculous. We were getting into, like, snuff film territory there. In the room. 9 p.m. Eastern on VOC Nation. Yo, this is Jerry Stein of the Nasty Boys. Yeah, Brian Knobs, yeah, you get ready to get nasty. Well, listen to the VOC Nation, baby. VOC Nation is one of the longest-running wrestling podcast networks. Having started way back in 2010, VOC Nation provides daily streaming shows where fans have the ability to interact with their hosts, and guests via phone calls, emails, and Twitter. VOC Nation hosts will include former backstage interviewer from both AWA and WWE, Ken Resnick, former WCW performer The Maestro, former Impact performer Wes Crisco, Pro Wrestling Illustrated contributor Brady Hicks, and former Philadelphia radio personality Bruce Works. Archive-free content includes past interviews with huge names like Paul Hogan, Jesse Ventura, Kurt Angle, Jimmy Hart, Ricky Steamboat, Sting, Mick Foley, Joey Styles, Howard Finkel, and so many more. Listen live at VOCNation.com and subscribe to all the podcasts by searching VOC Nation Radio Network on your favorite podcast app. And be sure to follow these guys on Twitter at VOCNation. Phil After has been in the pro wrestling business for over 50 years. Hey, Tony here with uh, Arn Anderson. Arn, first of all, your height and weight. 6'1", 255. And now subscribers to VOC Nation Premium get exclusive access to Bill After's archived audio footage. And uh, where's your hometown? Minneapolis, Minnesota. Okay, and uh, give us something about your back. First of all, your relationship to Ole Anderson. Ole is my Subscription to VOC Nation Premium starts at just $3 a month and includes commercial-free audio and video versions of our top podcasts. Okay, we're speaking here with uh, the manager of the World Heavyweight Tag Team Champions, Tarzan Tyler and Luke Graham, and he's, uh, he's sort of glowing tonight about a new prospect we haven't heard of yet. And for just $9 a month, Aptor's archives are all yours. Uh, would you tell us who this new prospect is? Well, I'll is? tell you, Bill, I've searched the world, and I finally <laughs> found a true world champion. I finally found... Well, what's your opinion of uh, Ivan Koloff winning the title from Bruno San Martino? 
Well, I think uh, I don't know what to say, but I, I want to say one thing. Bruno was a hell of a champion. You know? Hear exclusive interviews with the greatest performers of all time. Please go after, and once again, we're speaking here with Bruno San Martino. Bruno, first of all, how did you and Bruiser lose that title to the Valiant? Well, actually, it, it was uh, uh, a very unusual loss, if you want to call it. Did you have anything to do? Well, yes, but the whole thing is this: if you rules, as I always understood, and wanted to, the title could only be lost by pin or, or submission, which is the same rules as uh, my title, the World War Wrestling Federation. That night, uh, it was. To sign up, it's very simple. Head to premium.vocnation.com or go to patreon.com/vocnation. VOC Nation takes you behind the scenes of the greatest moments in pro wrestling history. Each and every Thursday night, check it out. WCW star Stro Maestro takes you on a journey. It's WCW Retro. Talking old school match of the week. Talking dream matches. Taking your calls and looking back on an incredible career of acting, entertaining, and wrestling. Check it out. VOCNation.com. WCW Retro. Be sure to call in Thursday nights, 9 Eastern, on the VOC Nation Radio Network. This is Matt Hardy, and you are listening to the VOC Nation.